Welcome to the Jess Larson Show on Innovation and Leadership. Today on the show, I've got Alex Bean and McKay Dunn. Guys, thanks for doing this. Yeah, happy to be back. Thanks for having us. So uh, I'm famous for my false starts, and we just did this. <laughs> but again, why don't we talk quickly? Alex, you've been on the show uh, back at Divi. First, when you raised $30 million and then $250 million, And then uh, why don't you tell people the, the latest news on that front? Yeah, uh, about a year ago, we sold uh, to Bill.com for uh, $2.6 billion. So uh, super exciting. Yeah, no kidding. Uh-huh. I mean, I came on early, so it's nice to actually come back and be like, we did it. We did the thing that everyone tries to do. So it's, uh, it's very satisfying to be here. Uh, it's going to be fun to like go back through the episodes and compare the notes along the way, right? Uh, but hey, why don't you talk about Portfolio and, and Peak and what you've done? All right. Yeah, I started my career at a place called Portfolio Advisors. It's a big private equity, private credit asset manager. Uh, managed about $30 billion or so. That was, that was out, in, out in Connecticut. Uh, I joined up with a firm called Signal Peak Ventures. It's a Utah-based early stage venture fund. Um, we invested out of a $150 million fund, uh, focusing on series A, mostly, uh, tech companies in the, uh, across the country and, uh, outside of the coast kind of theme. Um, about six months ago, decided to leave. Alex and I teamed up. Uh, we got to know each other back when Divi was raising their money. Um, back, uh, he tried to be our very first investor. He, he, he tried really hard uh, we, we wanted them to be, we won't go into all the details, but someone around of a gay w- w- didn't let it go through, but their first term sheet would have been a good deal for them. That would have been, that, would have been very good, way. but no, I, <laughs> we got to know each other through that process. Uh, I really liked Alex and, uh, reconnected on, on this topic of starting a venture platform, um, January of this year. And so we, you know, magic happened, you know, sparks flew and we, uh, created tandem about six months ago. Um, and can you talk about for people who you guys are doing SPV investments right now, for people that don't know what that means, what's an SPV? Uh, it's a special purpose vehicle. We invest, uh, we, we work a deal with the founders. Uh, we participate into a, fu- a funding round, uh, where we are a piece of it. We're not leading most of our deals. We've led one deal and we're, we're syndicating on two others and, uh, we'll also, we'll tell them that we want to invest three to $5 million and we go out and raise it from individuals in our network and people we get connected to. Uh, but it's a single purpose entity that we invest in and everybody comes in through that entity. So we're one line item on somebody's cap table, but you have access to hundreds or and 50 to, the, to hundred people. And to the investors, instead of putting in, you know, giving us the money and saying, okay, over 10 years, we'll make investments and we'll return it. We basically say, here's a deal. Do you want it? And they can say yes, or they can say no, deal by deal. So it's a little bit more flexibility for the investors. Yeah. Uh, and when you guys think about your mandate, like who you're interested in, tell us kind of the, the kind of founders listening today that should be giving you guys a call. I would say early stage, but they have product market fit is where we like to be. Um, we're going to get into product market fit, I think. Uh, but, you know, that they are not pre-product. They have a product. They're, they're growing the product and they have signs of uh, product market fit. Uh, we've done a lot of series A, that's kind of like where we typically show up. Um, but I think we can see ourselves more in seed and, and, and continue probably series B for the ones that we really like. Um, but I would call it early stage growth. Yeah. Anything to add to that? Yeah. So far we've done a series A, B and C actually. The one we're doing, we're, we're about to wrap up as a series C. It's a little bit later for us, but you know, what we're targeting is we don't, we don't want any losses through our SPVs because they're single asset. You can't offset any losses with any gain. So 
We want three to five X over three to five years, like really safe companies that we don't think are, are going to lose money. We want you know, really good downside protection. Either we're top of the stack or there's a lot of interested buyers in the space where we know we can exit and probably get our money back in a downside scenario. And in an upside scenario, we make five times our money. But we're not shooting for 100x out of these vehicles right now because we're not taking that kind of risk. But we will. we will. We will eventually take that kind of risk just in a different vehicle. Like if you get spreaded across a pond or something. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Well, um, we were chatting a bit beforehand, and uh, you guys know some of the questions I want to talk about today. Um, I think, McKay, maybe starting with you, looking back over your investment career, um, those investments that, that did really well um, versus the ones that you thought were going to do well and didn't pan out, what kind of lessons have you accumulated that, that kind of help you have a gut feel about what you're doing these days. Yeah, I think, I think it all starts with the people. I mean, I'd say team, in my calculus, I, I, like a pie of accountability, pie chart of accountability. You know, uh, Alex might disagree with the, the product market fit section of this pie, but uh, I think team is like, in a series A, like the early stage is like 80% of the pie. And the other 10% is, is market that they're going after and the other 10% is their product. Because things change over time. But if you have the right team, that matter that matters the most to me at least and the ones that i've seen work uh have a little bit of both but at the early stages it's you're really backing people because because crap happens you know you pivot but if if you have killers in there that that don't give up that's i think that's where you make a lot of money so it's really fun your analogy and you you said something about tenacity before we started i want you to repeat because on the show we've had a number of uh delta force seal team six rangers sf cia case officers and stuff and it's actually very similar. Like they're, they're selecting for creativity. They're selecting for a number of like physical characteristics, but like the number one thing that you hear over and over interview after interview is the primary thing we're selecting for is somebody will quit. That's the number one thing we're looking for is endurance, tenacity, grit, uh, and like with enough intelligence and creativity to adapt to the situation because it's like guaranteed whatever's in the plan is not really what's gonna happen in the queue. I don't know. But Alex has got a, got a great story about that through COVID. I mean, the tenacity yeah. to, to keep going through COVID. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. One of the things that uh, I got made fun of a Divi for this saying, but I'm going to say it because it really matters. And it's like, things are never as good as they seem as an entrepreneur. Like one day you're going to, you're going to have the right meeting or you're going to have the right sales report. And you're going to think like, oh my gosh, we're, I'm loaded. We're killing it. Everyone's going to make a ton of money. Uh, it's just never as good as it seems. There's going to be something the next day that will bring you back down to earth. But then also on the flip side, it's never going to be as bad as it seems. And the one he's referencing is, you know, during COVID, uh, we'll go into all the details. Some of it, I think is proprietary, but like we were basically valued at, you know, a billion dollars. And when COVID hit over that two to three week period before PPV came out or PPP, we basically were like zero. Like our investors backed out our, you know, we had banks that could have backed out any minute. And so we sat there just waiting for the phone to ring for it to be over because of the banks, the second they call and say, we're going to stop accepting applications, it's over. And it was just like, look, it can't get lower than this, but you have to find that middle ground and keep going and saying, Hey, is it worth it? Do I want to keep going after it? Cause it's never going to be too easy, but it's always going to be hard. And you have to be able to just say, Nope, I'm going to keep going, going to keep going, keep going through the, the good times and the bad times. Cause if you really believe in that vision and the product that you're building, it's going to fit that market then you have to keep going. And frankly, 
sometimes when people are too smart, that's the people who get hired by the great companies and they have these golden handcuffs. Like I'm smart enough and they just go over and do that. Like entrepreneurship is a bit of like a, a, a dash of grit, dash of competence, a dash of luck, and a dash of just like, I ain't freaking giving up until this thing is successful. And you like need that like perfect stew of uh, personality to get through it all. I, you know, I think you'd invited me to come in and talk about uh, child rescue yeah. to the team. I, I remember a couple of times, there was a couple of times. First person you've interviewed that's interviewed you? Mm. Uh, no, I actually had a couple interview me, uh, but, uh, on actually had somebody interview me on the show. We swapped. Okay. Tucker Max is like one of the, like five people in the world that have had four New York Times bestsellers at the same time. Uh, but, uh, anyways, I remember a couple of those phone calls just over, over time that were like, you know, things, I could tell things were tense. Yes, they were. I, there was days I'd come home to my wife and I'd be like, we've done it. Like we, like buy whatever you want. And then like a day later, I come home and be like, I'm going to get a new job. Like I'm on LinkedIn, do my resume. Cause you're just like, it's over. It's like within the week. I mean, it's crazy how fast things turn in, in startup land. So, so, um, thinking about navigating that it's probably not as good as it seems. It's probably not as bad as it seems. Um, what were you telling yourself? What's your self-talk? What, like, do you have any routines? Are there any things you do to like help get like Cut into the fire in the belly going again and like get after it. Yeah. So I had uh, one that was the fire in the belly. And for me, it was like, why did I start this? And it was because we thought we could change the way that every business on the planet could, would spend. That we were the ones that were going to innovate and bring in all this new technology into the way and change the world that people spend. They would spend smarter. And, and this was like our mantra. And to kind of like think back, like, why did I start this company? Why did I leave my other job that was paying well to come do this risk and, and do it? And think about those early days where you're like, oh, we're on to something and that excitement. And that was like, don't lose sight of that when things get hard or near in the middle of like making that product. But for me, the thing that really got me through, and this is just my routine, um, I would try to get to the office, I don't know, around eight. Uh, and I would always leave by 5.30 or 6, even if it was like crazy, because I wanted to be home to have dinner with my kids and put my kids to bed. Because no matter what was happening, like when you look at your kids and they call you dad, like they don't know if you're like the richest person on the planet or if you're like the poorest person on the planet. They, they don't know if you're smart or dumb. They just know you're dad. So for me, the thing that always like kept me just grounded through a lot of that crap is like going home and saying, hey, I got to spend two hours just with my wife and my kids with just trying to block out the good and the bad and say like what matters most. Because again, sometimes when it's going really, really well, you still want to talk to your kids and be like, okay, this is what actually matters. And, and that was really important for me. Um, you know, I thought for anybody who didn't catch previous episodes, what was, what is Divi? What was the policy? Oh, there? Divi, uh, think about taking like your American Express or whatever corporate card you use and then combine it with Concur, Expensify, and we brought it into one platform. So um, we were a smarter corporate card, allowed people to spend within budget, automate expense reports, and, and we gave it to people for free. And in exchange, we made money on the credit card side. So that was, that was the whole uh, product. And we primarily sold to small business and medium sized business. Yeah, that's great. Um, McKay, I want to go back and talk about, you know, being an investor, there's these ones that you're sure are going to go awesome and then they don't. And then every once in a while, there's, there's some that really have some magic and it really does perform. And over time, seeing the difference between those, um, I kind of want to go back to this idea of like, What's a lesson that you don't think you could have learned other than having spent your career this way? 
Well, I've I've seen I've seen definitely both sides of that. Um, there's there's two companies that I wanted to do at my previous firm that we didn't end up doing. One, well, there's there's a few, but two that really stand out. One was Divi, and that really worked out. And the other one was another company that I can't say the name of that I was I kind of fell in love with. Not as much as with Alex and Blake, but um, I love I love the company, and it failed like miserably. And it really came down to leadership. I mean, it was it was the team, the founder of the company that failed just could not rally people around him because he just wasn't a natural leader. Uh, he was very like introverted, little little bit self centered, um, but didn't didn't hustle. And people around him saw that they didn't hustle, and so it's like it's just like infectious. Um, created a culture of yeah, not hustling. So it was a ter- terrible culture you created. Raised a bunch of money and flamed out. And we gave him a term sheet and I thought we were going to win it. And he said no to our team term sheet. I'm very grateful for that. <laughs> At Ballpark, how much did they raise? Uh, about $20 million. I just, I, I ask because like entrepreneurs sometimes like in their minds, like if I could just raise $10 million, like all problems would be solved. And it's, I mean, 20 million is not obviously people raise much more. I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars and they still fail. I, and I think it's a fascinating world of when people raise $20 million or $100 million, whatever it is, and still still can't make it. Like you still don't have the team or the product market fit or the product, whatever it is. And it's like, just because you raise money doesn't mean it's going to work. So talk to me about this. When you're, when you're looking at team now, what are, what are some of the check marks you like to check? What are some of the, what's the feeling you want to get from them? How do you, you know, how do you get a sense for that when you can't really know the future? Yeah, it's and it and it really starts with the CEO. I mean, the, at this point, it's most of, most of the time the founder is also the CEO, so they have a vision, right? Uh, but it's really can can are they respectable? Can they attract talent? And can they attract really good talent? I mean, that that matters so much. Your job as a, a CEO is to do a couple things. It's to one not run out of money, and two hire the best people around you. And that like, if you spend all your time doing that, um, I'm not saying you're going to be successful, but like that, those are the two most important things. And if you can uh, you know, find find the right people to run each organization, that's a it's a world of difference. This morning we met with an investor, and that was the first thing that came out of our minds when we were done. Is like that CEO has it, like had the right energy, had the right competence, had the right likability, had the right vision. And a lot of it is like it's hard to describe on a template of like one plus you can't one. You quantify just, it. You feel it. And you're like, oh, I'd work. I would work for him. So then other, you know, other people are going to work for him. And, and I think that's like super important. A lot of, I've seen VCs do founder scores or team scores and all that kind of stuff. And I, I, I don't want to do that. It's, it, a lot of it is like, it's not an art. It's not a science, it's art, right? And this is, your judgment of character is not just on, you know, do you like that person? And I was like, will this person win? Will this person quit? Will this person recruit well? Like it's, it's all these things mixed in. And I, I I'm, I'm not going to say I'm the best VC out there, but like, I think you get a gut feel for the kind of founder that makes it happen. Okay. Um, Alex, I was telling you, it's been really fun on the show to have these different folks who've grown company from zero to a billion and then hear some of their favorite principles. And uh, I know you've got five of them. And I, want I do. To hear I have five. Uh, I did write them down because I like, just want to make sure I got them in order. Um, so I, I do, when you talk to founders that are early on, personally, I, I'm just like, look, the most important thing you need to figure out is product market fit. So 
my point to them is like, hey, the first time you get your idea, you're like, I want to start it. Who do you tell? You tell your spouse or your parents or your best friends. And they all say essentially the same thing. Cool idea, don't quit your job. Like that's like what they say. But I'm like, it's irrelevant what they say. You need to go to your buyer. Uh, and I'll just, so for Divi, um, for, for me, we sold two VPs of finance. Whoever was the controller over all the funds, right? And, uh, you know, we told our friends and family, I thought it was like a cool idea. I didn't quite get it, but I would start going on LinkedIn six years ago at this point. Uh, started going on LinkedIn. My, my goal was to find people that I had never talked to, didn't know me. They didn't like me. In fact, I didn't want them to know me or like me at all. In fact, I wanted them to be annoyed when I was on the call with them because then I could really test, is this widget that I'm selling them something they really want or they're just like being nice to me, right? Because you got to cut through that. And for us, you know, pre-product, I was just showing them Envision clickable prototypes saying like, all right, we're going to do this, we're going to do this. And I'm in the middle of my pitch and I'd be like cruising along, you know, not asking questions because I was bad at it. And they'd be like, hold on, hold on, hold on. They'd like interrupt me and they'd be like, hey, hold on, go back. You're telling me you can send 10 people to Vegas and you can stay in budget, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. They'd be like, whoa, if you can do that, I'll sign up right now. Like, when what? And, and I'm like, we don't have a product. He's like, yeah, but if you can do that, I'm in. And it was just like, oh my gosh, like their physical body language was up and the words they were saying were not like, oh, that's nice. It was like, wow, like eyes would light up. And for me, that was like an early sign. That's why I quit my job. I was like, oh, there's something here. We'll see if we can build it, but there's something here. You have to find product market fit. Um, if you don't, you just, it doesn't matter how good your team is. I guess it does matter a little bit how good your team is because they can evolve and they can adjust, but ultimately the team is adjusting to trying to find what product market fit is, right? Um, so to me, that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is once you hire your people, even, even if you're the smartest person in the world, you're going to hire really good people and you're ultimately going to be wrong and you're going to hire some bad people. Um, and sometimes it's not even bad people. Our example, the, 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 the second thing is to fire fast. It's better for everyone. So for us, we hired a guy who came in as our head of marketing. He's actually a really smart person. I respect him. Um, we asked him to come on. We launched in August. We thought we'd our product would be done by January. Totally naive. We were way wrong. Reality is, is like, what are you going to do with a chief marketing officer for a product that's not going to come out for like 16 months? Answers nothing really. And it's not that person's fault. We hired them. It was a giant mistake. Uh, do your best to give up severance and, and make it amicable, but like, you just need to cut it. Don't, if they're, if, if you hire a team and they're not hustling and you can tell like they're just not going to get it done, don't wait. Like we had another person in a role. We hired someone to be, I don't want to say the title cause I don't want to get back to them, but we hired someone in a vertical that we were like, this is a very key vertical. And we'd go into meetings and the junior person would be the one doing all the stuff making the decisions, outlining all the frameworks. And you'd be like, oh my gosh. So we'd leave the room like, why, are we, why is that senior person here? This junior person who is not, shouldn't be this role is killing it. They know everything. And you know, so we're like, all right, we're gonna make a change and put that, you just have to do it. Like if you don't, you, as a startup, your only uh, advantage is speed when you're, when you're small, right? The big boys have all the money. They have way more talent than you do. You have to move fast. And if you don't fire fast, uh, you're just, You'll weigh yourself down with bad culture. You'll weigh yourself down. Just, you know, acknowledge your mistake, talk to them and, and let them go be successful. As you guys are saying, like, there's some similarities in things you're saying. I just keep seeing in my head Brad Pitt in that movie Moneyball. <laughs> you know, 
And, and the book actually does a better job of explaining it, but like this concept of like, it's like, he is clearly not on the field. He's a former pro ball player, but he's clearly not on the field. And he, he like frames his entire life as tetrising the kind of team that could create this kind of performance. And that's like what his whole life is about is like, can I afford the team that has the highest probability of such and such output? And it seems like there's, but sometimes like in that analogy, you, you pay the big right fielder to come into town and hit and soon you realize, oh shoot, he doesn't fit with everyone else. This player doesn't fit into the puzzle piece I put together, but I just signed him to a big contract or they were my big hire. Doesn't matter if they don't fit your culture of getting stuff done, like get them out and move on to the next person. Otherwise, like we used to look at, we had, um, like 20 people at this one point and something happened with one of our partners where we had to like refocus and retool and we had to fire people. And it sucked. Um, and we were having this conversation, but it's like, if we don't let go of seven people, then these other 14 people will be out of a job in four months. So we can either keep this thing lasting and go hire more people. And by the way, we ended up hiring most of those people back, but you just have to make decisions quick when you're a startup. And I know it's difficult, but I would tell people you have to just call spades, spades and do it. Um, the other thing, the third thing I would say to someone is, uh, as a founder, you're replacing yourself. Like. Uh, this is my analogy to people. Let's say I invented a sport. I'm a sports guy, so I'm going to use the sports analogy. I invented a sport. It's called basketball. You've never heard of basketball. I've invented basketball. So I suggest come with me. We're going to play basketball. Now, when we start out, I'm going to be the best dribbler, the best shooter, the best rebounder, the best coach, because I, I, it's my sport. But pretty soon I'm like, oh, no, Jess is a pretty good rebounder. McKay's a really good shooter. Like, my job is to replace myself. You should be the rebounder. I should no longer rebound. Okay, you should dribble the ball at the court. I'm not going to dribble the ball at the court. Go hire the marketing person. That's what they've done their whole career. Go hire the salesperson. That's what they've done their whole career. Go hire the product person and the, all the other things. Your job is to become the coach. And then your job is to become the owner with the vision. Like, don't, I, th I see a lot of really good ideas get strangled to death because the founder thinks they need to do everything and they need to touch everything. Your job should be to replace yourself and let the great people that you hire act as if you're still in the room, like they hold on to your vision and your culture, but they should run it. Cause they, if you have, you know, 300 great people, that's obviously going to do more than one. Uh, and I just think if you understand that it's not the end of the world, when you fire yourself, but replace yourself, in fact, that's how you make a lot of money, then, then you're in a better spot mentally to start doing it. Cause a lot of entrepreneurs think like, nope, I'm the sales guy. I'm in charge of sales. And it's like, well, that's great. But if you're also the CEO and you also have to manage all the other things, you need to leave that as fast as you possibly can for your company to grow past you. That, if you want to become a unicorn, you're going to replace yourself. Look at the greatest companies in the, in the world, from Elon, Jeff, to Mark, all the big, big guys. They're still the faces, but they've replaced every aspect of the business with someone else. They just hold on to the vision. They don't want to run out of money. And they don't want, and they have to retain culture, which I, the vision, which is what Cam was saying. That's your job. Do those two things. The rest you should hire other people to do. So thinking about that, this, this, I guess my question is, it see, it feels like there could be a bit of a balance being there. Like, um, like you hire, you think it's going to great. And then, but you end up abdicating and they don't quite get the vision, and then you just end up having to replace them. The other side is you hold on too long, and you should have you should have brought in someone great earlier. Can you talk to me about navigating that that balance being? 
Yeah, I mean, I would say like, you have to let go at some point, right? Like in order for your company to be what you want it to be, you have to let go. So start to figure out like, all right, so uh, I ran sales. I think we had like six sales reps and I was good enough to manage them. But once you started to want, hey, we need to have 20 next year. It's like, oh, I've never managed 20. And then you're like, okay, well, I can't manage 20. I can figure it out. I'm probably capable enough to figure it out, but I should go find someone that I trust, you know, to do. And I'll talk about my recruiting theory on this in a second. Um, but you have to do it, meaning like you're eventually going to have to leave home and let someone come in and, and do it for you. Um, so take the risks. You, you got to do it. And if they aren't the right fit, then fire fast and bring in someone else. That doesn't mean you should hold on to the branch. It means like you need to leave. And if that person doesn't do a good job, bring in someone else until you find someone that doesn't. But holding on to it, I just like, what's the end game? When you hold on to sales or hold on to product or whatever, like what's, how big is your company really going to be? And at, at these early stages too, like you only have 18 to 24 months in between funding rounds. And if you don't make meaningful progress during that time, like you're raising at a different valuation. Like this stuff really matters. So I, I've seen companies that knew they didn't have the right salesperson, but like kept them in their spot because they, they like, oh, we can't get rid of them because we won't hit our next funding round. Like, doesn't matter. You got to fire super fast. I, I'm talking to, a, I know a company, I invested in them. I love what they're doing. I know for a fact they don't have the right head of sales right now. And I'm trying to tell the founder, I know it's tough. I know you're close to this person. You have to do it. Otherwise, you're just pretending for another four months until you're out of business. Because you're going to start raising. You're going to be out of business in seven. But like you're out of business now and you don't know it. That, that's actually the phrase I do it. You're out of business right now. You don't know it unless you replace that salesperson. And then you have a chance at being in business. But you're, you're just delaying the inevitable. And frankly, like entrepreneurship is not a government-based program, unfortunately. Right? Like there's not a safety net. It's just, it is like raw. You either have a product people want and you're going to get more money to keep doing it or you don't and you, no one cares. There's no benefits when you lose. There's no, like, you got to go try something else. So to me, I, I haven't said it out loud, but now that I say it, you're out of business, but you don't know it if you have the wrong people in there. So go find the right person. Um, can you talk about the concept of letting go of people you actually really like and care about, yeah. but you realize they're not the right fit anymore? Yeah. And, and how much we all hate doing that. By the way, that was me. I re when I replaced myself, I'm firing myself. I'm not the right fit. It's like, I got to look myself in the mirror. Alex, you're not the right fit for this. I'm going to fire you. But you actually have a lot of other things you can bring to the table. Go do those things. Okay, right? Like that took some, like took like a hit on my pride. Um, but when you go to someone who's not the right fit, well, I think one, if they have something that your team wants, then you got to put them and say, hey, in fact, I did this recent, won't go into all the details, but there's someone on a team I'm affiliated with who said, look, you're actually really, really great at these two things. The company needs you in that role over there to do those two things. That's where we want you. If you don't want to do those two things, then we're, then we're going to have to separate. We'll let you go. And, you know, we can talk about how to do that, which is just plainly quickly and do it. Um, but if they have skill sets you want to keep, then it's, it's, you do that. If not, it's like. If someone, we had someone who's in charge of a position, again, I don't want to name their vertical because I don't want them to self-identify, but um, they weren't good at it. And you're like, look, this isn't going to work in this role. And if they are pretending they're good at this job, it's just a matter of time before they get fired. 
or the, the mistake gets bigger. And now the mistake isn't just that they get fired, it's that their whole team's let go because the whole thing sucks. Um, so to me, I, I think it's about recognizing it, having honest, direct conversations with feedback and say, hey, like, here's where we stand, here's where we are, here's what we value. Uh, this is the offer we have for you to stay. And if not, then you just. If I can ask a question, how often are they blindsided by this conversation? If you are good at your job, hopefully not. Uh, and if they are blindsided, then that's on you for not communicating ahead of time. And I know that that's happened because you can still fire fast and still communicate fast, right? Like, I'm not saying that you should never give someone a chance or a warning. Um, but in a startup, as you said, those warnings need to be fast and the communication needs to be fast and direct and clear. So that if you're saying, hey, we only have so many months to figure this thing out, they're not like, wait, what? Out of left field, because that's obviously, I'd actually say that's bad for your culture. If you start like firing people, just like I'm in command and I can just fire whoever I want. It has no effect. Like every time you fire someone, your culture takes some hit, some hit. Now, if this person is like corrosive and like they're like sexually assaulting people, then it's probably a good hit. But like for the most part, when you fire someone, it's like everyone on the team is like, wait a minute, am I next? Um, is, was that the right move? And so you, I would say you have to communicate to them, to yourself and to the team, why or what you're doing is the right move. Um, but, oh man, I think if you fire, I hate to use the word fire because it's such a negative term. We fired at one point that in that COVID, we fired hundreds of people at once. And there was, you know, I will refer to it as a D-Day because that's what it was. It was a massive, like we sat down and every manager had to have one-on-ones. Uh, this isn't a pity party for us, but it was like, okay, we have to do it this way. We're going to do it. Uh, we did a lot of stuff we felt would help them get rehired. We ended up rehiring almost all of them back. Um, but it was a very productive, or I would say positive experience for both sides. Some people that left us ended up actually going to a job they actually wanted and were actually better at. They just were afraid to quit. And typically, if you're smart and hiring smart, talented people, they will land on their feet. I just, I, you can't, you're running your company. Your job is not to be super concerned about everything. So, okay, here's, I know we're trying to go down the rabbit hole here, but I'm super interested. What about the people who are good and are almost good enough? They're just not great. And you have to question yourself like, do we even like, do we even have what it takes to attack, to attract great? And, and I need to be honest that we just aren't paying those kind of salaries or do like that navigation between no, really pretty good, but like, I have a question for you. You tell me if you think I'm wrong. I, I think that there are certain roles in companies that need to be great. I actually think that there's other roles that can be good. They can be good. They don't need to be like, great. It's not like every single rep or person in your company needs to be like, incredible. Um, so I'd ask yourself, what role are they in and how vital is it to the success of your company? Cause like people can be good B players and they're good at their thing that they do. And they move that ball forward and they add to your culture like that. I don't think that that's always the killer. I think it's when you get C players that think they're A players and they want to get paid a certain thing and they want to take over certain things, but they're clearly not delivering uh, stuff. Uh, that's where I would get super nervous, but it'd be hard to have a whole team of A players. I mean, you obviously want to have all great people, but but, I mean, <laughs> but A players can make B players rise. But if your B player is running your revenue, yeah, then yeah. like you're then you're in trouble. Then you're right? allowing C players to exist on the team. Correct. But if you have an A person running revenue and you have a B player as like a third level manager, it's probably great. You know, it's probably it's probably gonna work. Okay, staying on this, um, 
I want to, I want to talk about the idea of once you start getting like three and four layers deep in an organization, what changes in managing a leader? Yeah. So when we had 25 people, we'd have a Christmas party and it'd be like, Hey, how's your kids? How are you doing? You know everything about these people. And they also know, even in your weakness, they know everything about you. So like, there's this touch that is lost when there's four people, you show up to a Christmas party and there's 600 people there. You're like, oh, I don't know, like a third of these people. So now they don't grade me on who I am as a person and our interactions. They grade me on my ability to, without them there, like lead in a, in a way, right? Uh, and it can get really hard to maintain a culture and maintain, uh, you know, like if you're all about honesty and grit and getting the job done, you got to maintain that when there's like four levels deep, it's like inception. It just gets like harder to keep it pure. Um, man, I wish I had like a one secret sauce. So Blake, my partner, who's the CEO of Divi, um, was really good at just saying, here's my expectation. Here's who I am. I'm very authentic. And here's what I expect. And I'm going to communicate that to everyone and I'm going to manage in that way. And so everyone would kind of understand at least that's what's expected at the top. And he did a really good job of hiring, you know, the next layer who represented him because he wasn't hiring people that didn't represent his cult, his personality. And it tears down that you start to lose effectiveness because at some point people are different. But um, he was really strong on who he was and it was pretty clear about it. And I think you wouldn't come to the company if you're like, oh, I'm not about that person. As we're seeing with uh, Elon Musk and Twitter, like people that clearly don't like Elon are leaving Twitter. It's like, great. And people that love Elon stay at Twitter. Interesting. Anything to add to that, McKay? Man, this guy's done it before. I, uh, no, I, I, I've got up to add to that. Uh, I guess I'll be more specific. When you think about the founders that you've backed yep. that have delivered, that have scaled their leadership as they've scaled their organizations, are there any common traits that you see in how they grow themselves or lessons they've had to add or, or just that progression i think i think one of the key things uh that comes to mind is just being intellectually honest with themselves and who they are and uh when people when when people find out you're fraudulent is when people stop believing in the vision and the company so if you just like alex just said like people knew that what the expectations were from the beginning and if you're if you're intellectually honest of, of where you're good and where you're bad and and who you need to fill here and who you need to fill there, uh, I think that matters a whole lot in building building that team. Did you see that a lot where like CEOs or founders or even the leaders of the exact team are willing to admit their faults? Because I actually find a lot of power in like the good leaders are able to say like, I'm going to lead you here. This is where I'm, this is what I do. I'm not great here. So if I mess up, be patient. If I don't communicate this clearly, be patient, but I'm not a great here. I don't see that like a ton. I see it in really good leaders. Like, did you see that or? You see both. I mean, sometimes a really great company is going to succeed regardless. And, you know, you have, you have really good product market fit and the market's really big. And so you kind of win despite certain people, but, but most of the time you have, you have CEO, CEOs that are self-aware that know and like are, are pretty open about where they're strong and weak, and they can hire to fill uh, the spots where they're weak. Let's do a recap on, on the principles so far. Yeah, so far. Uh, product market fit matters more than anything else. Um, replace yourself, oh no, fire fast. Number two is fire fast. Number three was replace yourself. Like the goal is to 
not be doing everything. Uh, number four um, was the car theory that we talked about. Like he talked about, McKay talked about people matter. We had the, the accountability chart of product market fit versus people. Now he said 80% is people. We can have a good, lively discussion. Of it. it depends what stage. Uh, yeah, it does. That, that, very true. Um, so why, why qualify that say Why does it matter what stage? If, well, you're, if you're really early, it's about the people. Yeah. If you're like picking your founding partner and you don't even have a product or your, your builders, like product market fits not there yet. You have to build great people. But I'd say once you're in like growth stage, yeah. Once you're in that, like, Hey, we have a product, then it's like, you can languish in the world of we have a product, but it's not really the product the market wants for a long time, or you can die pretty quickly there. Okay. My point is the car theory. So our, our theory of recruiting good people and finding people that would ultimately help us achieve becoming a unicorn. And I think this is probably the strongest thing we executed on at Divi was we would find people in the car, but not driving. For example, we were trying to hire a head of revenue and we said, okay, uh, what are re our revenue was like around 10 million. We said, we want to go from 10 million to hundred million. That's what we, that's our next milestone we have to do. Well, let's go right on the board, 10 to 15 companies that have done 10 to 15 million in a reasonably related industry. Okay. Boom. Here's our list of 15. 10, 10 to 15 companies that what have done the, they've done, have done the 10 to hundred million in revenues. So we're like, all right, they've done what we are trying to do. They've been on the racetrack. Okay. So then we would say, great, we want to go find out not who number one was there running revenue, number two, number three, number four, number five. So we go on LinkedIn and we'd say, who was the VP? Who was the director? Who was this person? Because that's who we wanted. We didn't want the head of revenue because that person got paid, isn't as hungry, and they're probably just either getting paid. They're going to go work for someone like Microsoft who's going to pay them. Great. They leave. But the people that were in the car, they know the turns of the race track. They know what to watch out for. They have the playbook on how to succeed. They might throw their own salt and pepper, their own little dish or secret sauce into this new formula, but they largely have it in front of them. So when you hire them, and I tell people like, how do you know? I'm like, well, go into the interview and say, hey, we're doing X amount of revenue. We have Y amount of reps. What is the next year gonna look like? And if they don't just turn open a page and say, okay, here's what's gonna happen. You're gonna have to move from this CRM to this CRM, and you're gonna have to go from this type of management to this type of management, this many managers. And man, when we hit 30 million, it took a leap, but we had to do this, this, and this to get there. If they don't talk about it in past tense, then you don't have it. But if they are like, no, here's what we did, then you can say, okay, is what is the race that they wrote, drove, is that the race that we're driving? And if it is, Go fire, go hire number two or number three or number four. And I promise you, if they were in the car, they're going to know the playbook and they're just going to be as more hungry to do it themselves to go get paid and make you, make you successful. I almost like hiring employees who can be mentors, huh? <laughs> but we didn't just do it for revenue. We did this for like head of people, head of engineering, like all, uh, there's a bunch of different milestones in your companies and it's like, you know, zero to a million and then a million to 10 million and 10 million to 50 or a hundred million. Like the your culture is going to change and your execs are going to change. And for us, we hit this inflection point of like, we have a really awesome team, but what's going to happen when we raise, like this is, I think around where we came and raised like 40 million. So we had, we're going to hire a lot of people. We're like, all right, well, we need to go find people that know what to do with that 40 million bucks. Cause Blake and I were pretty smart, but we didn't know what to do with 40 million bucks. Um, so we found three or four people. We fit that fit that bill. And a bunch of other people were with us, were talented enough to come with us, but man, the race car theory, people in the car was super, super helpful. And I would highly recommend it. So that was number four. Okay. Anything to add there? What about the people who, uh, you know, 
we're driving the car. You want people who want to drive the car, but how many people can you have that actually drive the car? Is that part of your analogy? Yeah. Uh, so you're saying like how many people in an org can drive the car? I think there's one car driver. My, my, like even like the CEO is the ultimate car driver. The, the, the CTO runs the engineer org. Like if you actually have multiple people trying to drive the car, it's going to crash. Like, cause you're, they're going to, they're going to want to do different things. And I, and when you have, there's going to be a power clash at some point and that bubbles up to the CEO and like that, I, I think that those are really bad. And that's a good example of fire fast. If you have two competing talents and they're both really good, you need to probably give it one chance of how does this work? But if not, just like, all right, this one's gone. Cause you need to have a one quarterback system, like one person who's going to come in and say, I got it. We're going to do it this way. Cause if you try to do an inside, inside sales motion and an outside sales motion, it's not going to work. You need to have a strategy and one playbook. So you can't have two books. Can't have two playbooks is probably the best way I'd say it. Okay. I love it. Did I steal your water? Okay. <laughs> um, uh, number five. Yeah. Number five notes. Um, this is like, there's, there's a, a graph in it. I don't think it's perfect, but it's ultimately like how fast do you want to grow? Cause if you want to become a unicorn, uh, for us, it was, you know, zero to four years, we can be unicorn and five to exit or something like that. Maybe three to three to five. Um, it takes money. We raised a ton of money up front and we raised money throughout. Like once we got on that, that track of raising money, we couldn't just take money and then like, okay, now let's slow down. Like you take VC dollars and you're on this growth chart. Hopefully it goes this way. Um, but there's a lot of great companies that don't and they might take time and they slowly go, but it's just like on the, on the, on the graph, the time chart is way out here. And to me, for us, if you want to become a unicorn fast, you do have to take money and you have to be able to apply the four principles that we discussed before. But I don't know if that's always the route. Like even, um, you know, people come talk to us. There's people we will talk to and say, you don't have to take VC money. Where VC money or investor money is not the sole path to success. In fact, a lot of the people who personally have the biggest contribution to both their pocketbooks and to the world around them, a lot of times didn't take money. They just took more time to get there. Uh, and I would just, if I was an entrepreneur doing it again, I would sit down and look myself in the mirror and say, what am I? Do I have to take VC money or do I just want the ego of taking VC money? Am I in a market? For example, we have a, a, a local business. This is my opinion, um, which I'm sure people disagree. Um, but we have a local company called Qualtrics. They're super big now. Uh, but for a long time, they weren't. For 15 years, they were fairly small. They were in a fairly unsexy market, though, like call, like survey, educational surveys. Um, so they didn't need to take money. Divi, for example, we were take we were going up against like three or four super well-funded startups out of San Francisco and New York. Uh, you know, every bank you've ever heard of, you know, Concur, like giant companies. So we like had to. It was our path to take it. And we were intellectually honest with ourselves that we're going to take money, we're going to go and just know what that means. And all I would say is when you're, when you're starting a company and you start to figure out product market fit, I would then start to say like, all right, are we going to take time and we're in the right market and scenario to do that? Or are we going to take money and go do the business? And one thing? of the worst things you can do is take money from the wrong group. I mean, not just which VC, but like which uh, kind of investor. Like, what's, what's are, they, are they shooting for a unicorn? Are they shooting for a 5X? Like having your yeah. incentives aligned with your investor matters a lot because that'll really slow you down. People, people will want their money out 
and you got to you know, worry about getting people's money out on your cap table, which is really the, a frustrating thing for a CEO to do. So aligning and aligning your the motivations with your investors matters a lot. But I think that's hard because a lot of people think like, I just need to get $3 million in the bank so I can do X, Y, Z. And what McKay is saying, I think is smart. Money isn't always money. Like you need to find the right person who wants to be, you know, in the right relationship, which is like, hey, if I'm a VC and I have a seed fund, I'm unicorn hunting. I'm out here. I know that 80% of my deals are going to fail, but 20, 10 to 20% if they hit like as unicorns, I win. So if you, if they invest in you and you start going slow, they're going to be like, get out. Like, I don't want to talk to you. Like no more money, but you ha I agree with that. I actually think that's really sage advice is when you're taking money, figure out what do they want in return? So when we're investing right now in our SVBs, we're looking for people to have three to five X returns and not so long of a timeline, right? We don't want to be three to five X return in 15 years. Whereas if we were unicorn hunting, we might say, yeah, 10 to 15 years is fine, you know, because that's what it takes. Um, I would, I would agree with that match up, match up with your investors. More private equity fund masquerading as a VC. Don't want to take money from those guys. And they keep trying to buy up equity and do add on acquisitions. I've seen that a few times and it doesn't end well, right? If you're, if you're not aligned, it's, it's really bad. You get messy. Um, so I want to ask this question, both directions. I'll, I'll put you on the hot seat first out. <laughs> sell, sell the make a bunch of cash, kind of do what you want. Why? Why choose uh, someone with formal VC background? Um, I think it takes two to tango. Divi was not going to be Divi without VCs behind us. Access to the cash that we needed to operate the way we wanted, right? Um, and VC is its own motion. It really is. So I actually have, although I give McKay a hard time for not having operated a company, I have a lot of respect for the VCs that back Divi and for people that have been through the investment realm because it is a skill set, just like being a head of sales and head of marketing is, right? Um, so for me, to have the impact I wanted to have, which is frankly like, yes, I like money as much as the next person, but I want to like help 10, 20, 30 other people go through the experience I got to go through. Like I consider it a real privilege to have been on that experience. And I think I can give context and insights and help and, and point in the right direction. And if I could pair that with the skill set I don't have, which is the VC, you know, uh, background, then I was like, great. And and by the way, when I look to hire someone, I ask three questions. Like, one, do I like them? Because if I don't, I don't care anything else. So do I want to have lunch with them? Do I trust them? Because I don't care how smart they are. If you can't trust them with your open wallet, then don't ever go business with them. And then third, are they competent? And for me, picking McKay and picking uh, a VC operator fit those. It's like, all right. He's got the skill sets I don't have, and I like to trust him, so let's go. And when you thought about those skill sets, what was it? What, what was on that list of skill sets? Or yeah, I mean, this first thing. things first is like VCs are access to capital, right? The ability to fundraise, the ability to understand the motions of fundraising. Uh, you know, like for us, a Divi was like, all right, in my past 10 companies, it's like, all right, sales quota time. And that's a whole different motion on hitting your monthly quota versus like, okay, we're going to raise funds and this is the motion of raising funds and meet LPs and how do you per talk to LPs? Like it's, it's those things that, you know, you can take for granted and think like, oh, it's easy, but I'd like to say I'm remotely intellectually honest and in saying I haven't done that aspect of it. So, uh, with the family office versus a pension fund versus a. A very good example, right? Like in my mind, I'm like, well, we just go pitch, 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 pitch without really knowing where the money was. And it is different uh, in how you talk to them and what they're looking for and uh, and those relationships. So that was that was what was attractive about uh, the BC background. Okay. 
question in reverse. Um, you know, you're, you're in the VC world already. Why partner up with an operator? Why not start uh, fun with pure VC guys? Why not? Why choose this route? I already did that. Uh, no, I, actually, the uh, being an operator is way harder than being a VC. I mean, when we say we're working hard, it's not like you're not working 100 hours a week like Alex was. Um, but Just for caveat. And the whole team. <laughs> the, there's a lot of people who worked really, really hard. Yeah, everybody worked hard at Divi. Um, you know, I made a, when I decided that I was going to leave uh, my previous firm, I knew I wanted to partner with somebody with operating background. And I made a list of probably 25 people that I thought could be a good fit. Um, and I actually talked to my mentor, uh, one of my mentors who, uh, runs portfolio advisors that, uh, I was like, you know, I ran, I ran some names by him. He goes, Oh, if you can get Alex, you should leave in a heartbeat. And actually I was like, okay. And Alex was, I don't know if I told you, you were, you were number one on my list. Oh. And, uh, then I reached what out, a, I, was like, I was like, what a reveal. Yeah. <laughs> uh, live, yeah, live. <laughs> the most dramatic ceremony yet. <laughs> Would you accept this rose? Yeah, I, I did. Yeah, yeah we're here. Um, no, you, number one on the list. And, uh, you know, honestly, the combination of having somebody with a VC background and an operating background, you, I think it's pretty easy to teach somebody how to be a VC. It's much harder to teach me how to be an operator. But the combination of the two, I think, is a, is a really effective team. Um, so, yeah, having, having not just um, VC experience, we can go to entrepreneurs who entrepreneurs have chosen us because of Alex's background. I mean, everybody wants a little piece of the Divi magic, I guess, but you know, having somebody in the room who's gone from zero to two and a half billion in five years, everybody wants to mimic that. That's, that's kind of the dream for every entrepreneur we meet with. And being able to say, hey, we've got the playbook. Alex has got the playbook. You know, he knows how to do this is, is super powerful. And so, yeah, it's, for me, there couldn't have been a better partner that I could find. So That's awesome. Yeah pretty pumped about it yeah seriously um uh next question thinking um thinking uh, from a founder's perspective right they're coming to you there's they're just here to ask for advice they're not here to ask for money right and they're saying hey should i do this thing that's paying the bills that works um and that has like a clear path to ongoing revenue it could be a big business or there's this other thing that i love I don't know how to get from, I don't know how to get like the first level, but if I can get over that first level, it goes way bigger in the long term. How do you help them think through a decision like that? What? It feels like a little bit like I got a bird in the hand here, but there's two in the bush. This is what I actually want to do, but this is paying now. So two in the bush are way prettier than the current one. I would, well, I would ask them like, what, what's telling you that you, that you should do this other thing, right? And you're going to hear it in what they say. They're going to say, well, I really think. I, it'd be really great if I could do this or we could achieve that. Like, cool. But what is the, has the market been telling you anything about this over here? Right? Like back to what I was saying about what I did when I called people on LinkedIn, like, are you getting any wows over here? Are you getting anything that's telling you, you have to do this? Or it's just you thinking like, oh, shiny squirrel, like we should go do that. Right. And I'd get really nervous of someone being distracted, but if they could show me some underlying use cases or offshoots, maybe the product that they are selling has been spinning off these, like these people saying, I need this thing. You'd have to show me the underlying elements of product market fit before I'd say, go do that. Um, versus, Hey, if you're selling this thing over here, doing this thing over here, like, and by the way, it's a business, then keep doing it. But I also, 
I'm a risk taker. Like I tell people all the time, I'm not the smartest guy in the shed, but one of the things I get, I hope I get credit for when it comes to Divi is like, I left a job that was making great money. We had a lot of success. So it was two birds in, in the bush. And I told my wife and I told my you know family, I'm like, I'm leaving because there's this thing over here. It was like, you're crazy. But I'm like, no, but you should hear the conversations I'm in when I tell people what we're going to build. And then it was a lot less risky. It was a matter of time. And I would want to gauge that. Okay. If that makes sense. No, I like that answer. I think there's a lot of uh, factors that go into this. I mean, if you, the company, the, the product that you're currently running, what kind of outcome can you have as a business if you only do that versus if we kind of do that and then also experiment over here? Like what kind of business can that be if we do both? Um, and are your incentives aligned with your uh, capital partner. I know I hit that again, but um, if you don't have anybody to fund that growth, how are you going to be able to explore it? Um, but yeah, if if the ultimate outcome is is the trajectory changes in the business by doing the new idea, um, and you have the capital to back it, and you have the, you got the runway, then and you're passionate about it, and you get good customer conversations, then then absolutely go for it. But I mean, there's just so many factors that that play into it for me. And it's kind of like a, a macro question that re requires a micro question. <laughs> like to really answer properly, you'd have to get the actual use case and say, okay, show me what's happening, what stage of business they're in um, to really be able to give the... But we're also in the business of taking chances. So like I'm a, I'm a cheerleader for following your passion and taking chances. I, entrepreneurship is risky. And I think if you get into it to then be conservative, you're probably in the wrong market. Meaning be smart about the risks you're taking, but you have to take risks. It's, a, it's all it's about. It's what innovation requires. It's what the upside requires. Um, so pick it and go for it. Yeah, I'm with you. And let's do it in tandem. There you go. Yeah. Okay. So uh, any founders today listening who are like, man, I think these are the kind of guys that I want be in our capital that I want to helps, you know, I would love to have on our team from the capital sec. Come to the website. Like, where, where, where do people connect with you? You can go to the website and you can, uh, there's a, there's a form at the bottom of the website to submit your, uh, information. You can send an email. It's tandemvpventurepartners.com. Okay. And, and to add on to that, we're just not the only ones here, right? We, a lot of founders in the area are involved with what we're doing. So um, we're trying to represent the group of founders that have come before and the ten unicorns that have come before to say, hey, if you want to become a unicorn, call us, let us invest in, in you, even if it's to follow on. And we're going to hopefully give you our playbooks because that's, you know, the people I talk to and interact with, we're like, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. We want to give you the playbook because we want to see more success in our area and with more people. And if we can have a piece of that, great. Love it. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, as we end here, McKay, what's something we didn't cover that we should have? What's a soapbox thing for you? Or what do you want to leave people with? Oh, man. Um, I don't know. Uh, you have something to yeah, yeah. think. Every entrepreneur is the, like, you're the greatest salesman of your own vision. And sales gets tossed around as like this negative connotation i think a lot but i want people to know if you're the founder your job is to 
is to like transfer your level of enthusiasm to investors and to people that come work for you. And that's what you're selling. You're selling your vision and the energy that you have around it. Like you better believe in what you're doing. If you're just doing what you're doing because you think it will make money, I promise you people will feel it. They will not buy into it. Promise. But if you're like, this is going to work and I love what we do and I know we can make it work. My thing to those entrepreneurs would be like, if you know it in your bones and you feel that level of energy, other people will follow. That is your responsibility is to like have that vision for what the world is going to be and say, come with me and we're going to get there. Um, and that means like you're thinking about in the shower, you're thinking about what you drive, you're thinking about it on weekends, you're thinking about it when, wake, when you wake up and not just being drained by it, but you are being empowered by it. That's when I think that to me is the investor or the entrepreneur I want to back is the person that's like, I'm the one to solve this problem. And here's why, um, because you can just feel it. And that's the person we talked to this morning. I felt that from the second we got on the call. I'm like, this person feels like they are almost born to solve this problem and they're going to solve it. Hell or high water, whether we join or not, doesn't matter. And I'm like, oh, ah, it's so exciting. And I want to work for them. I want to invest in them. I want to do whatever. And I think that that is your job as an entrepreneur, that right there. Yeah. I don't think I can top that. No, you can't. I think that's what we're Thanks, Jess.